It's the Weekly Show with David J. Maloney. This week, David chats with Emmy-nominated actress Lee Purcell. And now, here's your host, David J. Maloney. Our featured guest tonight is a two-time Emmy-nominated actress whose craft in both film and television has seen her work with, uh, with a true who's who of the entertainment industry, while gracing us with some truly fantastic performances across the years, from Long Road Home to Big Wednesday to Secret Sins of the Father, and the list goes on and on. Here to chat about her incredible life and career is the great Lee Purcell. Lee, welcome to the show. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. As I mentioned in the intro, you've had such an incredible life and career. But before we get into that part of your story, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your early life. Like, what was it? What was life like growing up? As I understand, you were in a military family, yeah? I was in a military family for, um, yes, I had a very uh, nonlinear childhood. A lot of people have linear childhoods. Uh, I have no idea what that's like to be born in one place and then you grow up in that place and you have the same two parents your whole life and and so forth, right? I didn't have that. Um, and mine was a bit uh, erratic. And I think uh, in a strange way that has served me well in the entertainment industry because we moved um, so many times. And then at one point we stopped moving and and that was unnatural to me. It was odd. It was like, what? When are we moving? And and we didn't. Um, it, I I liked the moving part. I liked being in a new place. Um, and we lived in interesting places. And uh, I liked that. And I did not like it when we stopped moving. So I, I, that might tell you something. I'm not sure. Did you know anybody in L.A. beforehand? I mean, had you lined up anything ahead of time or was this kind of just I don't want to say it was a, a leap of faith because seemingly you were very this is what you were going to do. You were driven, obviously. But mm -hmm. I mean, had you had anything lined up or were you just going to go and just make it happen? It was a leap of faith. I had uh, my grandmother. She lived in California. She lived in L.A., but she wasn't here at the moment because my grandmother was bicoastal. She was bicoastal before anybody even heard the term. Right. And so she was on her her other nursing job in another state uh, where my parents lived, and but she still had an apartment. And so she she gave me the key to her apartment, and I drove to L.A. and I had a horrible car accident upon entering L.A. and destroyed my car and nearly died, and uh, and then ended up. It's a long story, and and then ended up uh, finally in, in her after I went to the hospital. And they checked me out and then I got to her apartment and then I called her and said, this happened. And she said, I'm getting on a plane. And she did uh, because she was uh, really my great champion. And she um, got on a plane, she came out and, and I, I just had, you know, I had a lot of flying glass had hit me in the face and then legs and whatever. But other than that, you know, little bruises and stuff. I, I don't know how I lived through that, but I did. I mean, my car literally flew through the air and rolled several times in the air before wow. it landed upside down on the freeway and then bounced back. So um, I had a guardian angel. I was very aware of that. And and then my uh, and then my grandmother and I went to the wrecking yard, and I said, "Oh, there's my car." And she said, "Where?" And I said, "Right there, where you're looking." And it was this tangled mess it was like it would like it had been through a crusher 
except for the driver's seat was intact. It's really strange. I had nothing left in the world, everything. I mean, I had a few bits and pieces that a taxi driver had picked up for me on the freeway. He was a wonderful man. And, um, and other than that, I had nothing. And, um, but I had the money I had saved, which I thought would last a long time and didn't. But I got a job uh, working in a disco and uh, because I, I quickly learned that my little bit of money was not going to last very long. LA is expensive. It was expensive even then. And I and, uh, had a little, uh, terrible little one-room apartment and really horrible. And But I, you know what? I was thrilled. I was so happy. I was on my own. I was earning money. Not much, but I was earning money. I was paying my own bills. I was walking to work because I had no car. And... I was utterly happy, as we are sometimes, in those in those youthful uh, time periods where we're making our own way and learning what actual life is like. How did you initially start breaking into the industry in LA? Was it commercials, or or how did that come about? Well, I had I was going to because I was a dancer. I was going to support myself dancing, but I was. I had injured my left knee mm-hmm. in the in the car crash. And even though it eventually healed and I did, was able to go back, but not for a very long time. <clears throat> so um, I got this job in a disco and I was um, selling clothes because the disco was huge and it had a boutique. And so I got a job selling clothes in, the, in that. And I started meeting people. I, I vaguely knew this one person and I called him and and he was like, who? You know, and I said, remember, I met you through your family member and he did a few things for me, but then it, it, it that turned bad pretty quickly. And um, and my grandmother was of no help. She was a nurse, you know, so uh, even though she was incredible, you know, but certainly not in the entertainment industry. And so I just started to meet people. You know, I worked in the disco. I um, went to acting class and singing classes and dance classes and and um, couldn't dance very well yet. I mean, because of the injury. But then, um, you know, you just you just gather people to you and uh, like minded people who are artists and um, and in the industry. And then somebody said to me, you know, you're tall, you know, you're you look a certain way. You should model. And I said, oh, God, not that again. And uh, I'd already done that, right? But it was like, I needed to earn more money. So this this was legitimate. The other one wasn't. Um, but this was legitimate. And I got introduced to the biggest modeling agency on the West Coast. They signed me right away. And so I started working as a model. And uh, I wasn't very good at it. And I didn't like it. But it was money. And and then uh, and and was paying for my rent and my food and um, you know my acting classes and so forth because my money was pretty much vanishing real quick and and then um, and then the modeling agency said uh, you know you should do commercials and and I said uh, no I don't want to right now and then. And then later I decided to do commercials. And so I got the list of franchise commercial agents from the union and uh, and started with the A's on the list. And I went to the B's 
got, kept getting turned down. A's turned me down, B's turned me down. Ended up in the C's, almost the end of the C's. And I walked in, because I, I didn't know you were supposed to make an appointment. You know, I just showed up. And um, I didn't have, you know, a lot of nice clothes or anything. And so I went to this agency, very posh agency on Sunset Boulevard, walked in the door and I was, I was uh, getting pretty, pretty desperate. And so I said, I'm here to see Mr. Cunningham. And they say, you have an appointment? Nope, I don't. And they said, well, you need to make an appointment. I said, nope, I need to see him today. It's really important. He'll want to see me because, you know, when you're young, you have that kind of chutzpah. And, um, and, and, and they were curious about this girl. And so they went back and they talked to him and he came out. It was serendipity, total serendipity, unbelievable, really. And it was Bill Cunningham, who was the most amazing person, he was, and he was the biggest commercial agent. So now I had the biggest modeling agency and I had the biggest commercial agent. And it turned out, I found out much later, I reminded him of his daughter and his daughter had died of a drug overdose not long before that. And he saw something in me that he was afraid that would happen to me, even though there was no way that was gonna happen to me. But because of this tragic loss, he decided he he just he was just going to take me under his wing, and that was that. And he did, and I started getting commercials. So I was doing the little bit of modeling and the commercials, and still working, you know, in the disco, and going to acting class, singing class, dance classes, and so forth. I mean, it, it is amazing what you can do um, in life when you just kind of don't have any options. And uh, so I was doing that, and then. Time passed, and then Bill said to me one day, called me up, and he said, there's a film you ought to audition for. I said, I'm not ready to audition for him. No this, is this Adam at 6 a.m.? Yes, yeah. And I said, no way am I ready to audition for a film. And and so he, I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I would just embarrass you and me, everybody. No. Mm. Uh, Bill kept calling me for two weeks and saying, really, really, I really think you should do this. They're seeing an awful lot of girls are perfect for this. I'm like, mm, No. And finally, he said, you just have to do it. I'm sorry. Just take a leap of faith again and just go do it. And I said, oh, okay, if you put it that way. And so I did. I went and I auditioned for this film, which was called Adam at 6 a.m. It's a very long time ago, but you can still see the film. It's a sweet, sweet film. And uh, nobody was cast. Nobody. None of the cast. None of the roles were cast. And uh, Steve McQueen was producing it for his company, Solar Productions. And... I knew that, uh, but I hadn't met him, and I, and I, he was hard to think of this now, though it's so strange. But he was of my parents' generation; he was their age, right? And so, to me, I, I hadn't seen a lot of his movies. I think I had seen one, maybe. So I didn't have that kind of um, scary awe that I would have had, maybe if it was more in my age group or it was somebody you know, younger. Um, I didn't, I didn't have that. And so I auditioned, I had five auditions and they started with 500 girls and got down to five. And um, I met him on a Saturday morning and I didn't know I was going to meet him. And uh, I had been through three auditions. I think by that time, the fourth was coming up and they had called it down to, I don't know what that was, 50 maybe. And, um, and so I got a call on Saturday morning and I was out in my yard, my little 
little crappy yard. And I was digging and planting flowers because I've always been a gardener. And um, and I get this call, I hear the phone ring, they rush in the house, answer the phone. And um, they said, you need to come over to the office right away, uh, to the solar offices. And I said, okay, okay. And I thought that was odd, Saturday is odd, right? And uh, so I, I said, I'll come in there in an hour. I need to take a shower. No, nope, you don't have time. You have 10 minutes to get here. Like, oh, I thought, oh, well, I kind of, in my head, I, I, th I thought, oh, they probably want to get me some more sides. Those are audition pages that you get. Probably want to give me some more sides. And uh, they're probably closing the office early. They just want me to get there so they can have their Saturday. And I understood that. And so I just jumped on my card, dirty, you know, uh, dirt under my nails, sweaty, hair greasy, you know, because uh, it was hot and um, and rushed over there and bounded up the stairs because I've been there now so many times and bounded upstairs and yanked open the door and there was Steve McQueen. And it was like, oh, hi. And it's, hi. And he said, um, hi, I'm Steve. And I went, yeah. And uh, I said, I'm, I'm Lee, Lee Purcell. I got a call to come over. I, am I going to pick up some signs or what? And he said, no, we're going to talk. I said, okay. And so we uh, talked for about three hours. People were coming and going and whatever. And we just kept talking. And we talked about everything, literally everything in life that you could think to talk about. Talking about our childhoods, our respective childhoods. They were in a strange way, similar, very, actually very similar even though not materially, but experientially, they were very similar and, um, and not, uh, not great childhoods. And which was okay, because we were both like, hmm, okay, fine. So what? And, um, and we talked about motorcycles because I rode motorcycles and he rode motorcycles and talked about acting, talked about life, just talked. You know, and it was easy. It was really easy to talk to him. He was the easiest person in the world to talk to because he had no pretense. Here he was, the biggest movie star in the world, really, at the time. He had no pretense. He was just in an old, I don't know, a sweatshirt and some ripped up jeans, you know. And uh, and we just had a great talk. And I knew it was a test. I knew it the whole time. And um, And so that was it. I went home prepare for number four audition. I did number four audition. It went well. And I got a call. I was in the final five and we were going to do uh, a screen test. And that was a bizarre screen test. I've done a lot of screen tests. It was pretty bizarre. And um, we were all driven out to this, to I think the Disney ranch, one of the, maybe one of, one of the studio ranches. And we, and we were in the same car. We all crammed into this one car and all five of us. And, um, uh, one one girl was a friend of mine, and um, it's very weird. And then and there were no dressing rooms. There was nothing because it was an outdoor scene, right? So we would just kind of go sit on a log until it was our turn, and then we would do our scenes. You know, while everybody else watched, it was like so strange. And um, then we got back in the car and we all went home, and that was that. And then I got a call, pretty quick, maybe uh, two days, and then I got in the role, and it was I was just floored. I, even though I knew, I knew I was going to get the role by that time. By the fifth, by that screen test, I knew, I knew I was going to get the role. I just knew it. That's how I ended up being mentored by Steve McQueen, because he called me and he said, uh, I want you to, you know, come to the office, you know, frequently. We're going to do this. I'm going to tell you this because I know you're new 
And I was, oh boy, was I new and uh, raw. And uh, I said, okay. And I would go there pretty much every day, sit. And and when he had time, I would talk to him and then we would work out. And because uh, he said, you're too thin. You need to be, you know, more heavier for this girl, but not fat. And I said, okay. And I started like eating like fried chicken and brownies and whatever. And, and he said, and we're going to work out. So if you don't, um, you know, gain weight incorrectly, I said, fine. So we would do every day, uh, kind of this martial arts kind of exercises. And one day I said to him, so where are you learning all these exercises? And he said, oh, you know, I do martial arts and my martial art, my martial arts instructor uh, teaches me these exercises. And I said, oh, great. You know, and I never asked his name, the martial arts guy. And year, <laughs> you probably know where I'm going. And then years and years later, when I was interviewed, I'm in a lot of in several books about Steve. And um, uh, and the interviewer, I told him that story. And he said, you don't know who that was, the martial? I said, no. And he said, it was Bruce Lee. I, oh, oh, I, I didn't know that. So I was kind of trained by Bruce Lee, uh, one person removed, which was Steve McQueen. And um, and so I actually do some of those exercises to this day. And because uh, they were really good exercises. And and then he just taught me, oh, he taught me so much, just so much. Yeah, he was, he was incredibly smart. I don't know how many people really know that about me. He was incredibly smart. And he was uh, perceptive. He was had a lot of empathy, and uh, and he was driven like nobody I've ever seen driven, until until Tom Cruise came along, and then I was like, oh my gosh, he's like Steve. He's got that that drive and that ambition and that intelligence to back it all up, and that was who Steve was, and he died too young. He died at fifty. And um, he only died 10 years, he died 10 years later. I was crushed and destroyed. And and he was the best. And I will always, my whole life, I'm always grateful to him because he started, I would have, I would have had a career, but he opened the doors for me that nobody else could have. So it was like being blessed by the Pope, you know. So that was Steve. Is there one piece of advice that sticks out that he gave you that you feel may have made the most impact on you? Boy, that, that that's kind of a tough one because there was so much over a long period of time. And I remember a lot of them. And some of them I just keep to myself. Um, but one is one is that always always be always understand that everybody's equal on a set whether they are craft service, whether they are, whether they are the big time producer, you treat everybody with the same respect and kindness. And that has stuck with me all my life. So I, I think that's really important. As I recall, Adam at 6am was one of Michael Douglas's first film roles. Um, yes. It, what do yes. you remember about the day you met him? I don't remember anything about the day. <laughs> um, but Michael was not a movie star. Yeah. I, I think it was his third film, I think. And um, actually, I was cast before he was. And so I 
I, then I went through the audition process and as the female lead with all the guys. There were a lot of guys and uh, great, great young actors, all of them, every single one. You could have hired any of them, really. But then one day, and I was doing screen tests with them, and I was doing what's called chemistry tests, and I was just reading in the office and whatever. And then one day, Steve says to me, well, we found Adam. And I went, oh, well, who is it? And, he, and it was so funny looking back on it. He said, um, it's Kirk Douglas's son. I thought, oh, what's his name? And he said, Michael. And I went, okay. And he said, you're going to meet him really soon because you're going to start doing, you know, rehearsing and you're going to start doing reading the script together. And, and I did. And, you know, we were just, we were just two young actors and, you know, looking to, you know, have a career and he had a leg up, you know, cause he was, you know, Hollywood royalty, but he didn't, he didn't depend upon that ever. And he was actually raised by his mother really elsewhere. And then, and then, uh, came to Hollywood and he and his dad were very, very close, but, but it was his mother that raised him when he was a youngster. Cause he and his mother, uh, his dad, and his mother were divorced and, but he was very close to his father. And of course, then I ended up starring in a movie with his father. Like, I don't know how many years later, 10 or, or something. And it was, that was like a really interesting kind of full circle, you know, cause he would talk about his dad. And, uh, and I knew his dad was Spartacus and all of that. And, um, and then he said, you know, we, we talked about a lot, Michael and I did, because we were, you know, kids. And, and then, and also they sent us, we did the film together, and then they sent us on a huge tour throughout the United States uh, for the film, to promote the film. And that was really something, really, really something. And um, and one day uh, he said, you know, what I really want to do is produce. And I said, well, okay, then you should. And and he said, yeah, I have this uh, project that was my dad's and he can't get it done, but someday I'm going to get it done. And of course it was one flew over cuckoo's nest and he, he sure did get it done. And, you know, he was, he was really smart. He was a smart, smart, smart guy. And his dad was really smart. And, um, and, and that was great. That was really great. You've, as I mentioned in the intro, you've worked with, I mean, so many of the greatest names in the business, both directors and actors. And, and one that sticks out to me mm -hmm. is uh, Orson Welles. Oh. Um, <laughs> uh, he's such a larger than life figure in the history of cinema to most of us. What can you tell us about your experiences with him? It was the second film I did. Uh, the first one was Adam. The second one was uh, this terrible, terrible film. But, you know, I was young and Adam hadn't come out yet and I needed a job. Did he just kind of feel larger than life to you like he does to the rest of us? Well, you know, Orson was larger than life. He was a huge man. <laughs> Physically, he was really larger than life. But he was, um, yes, it was, it was surreal. You know, I had come from... Steve McQueen, Orson Welles. So I guess I guess what that did for me in life all these years later, I, there's nobody who can intimidate me. <laughs> it just isn't. Steve McQueen, Orson Welles. That's how your life starts. You're set, you know? So because it, it, it was a completely different experience from really the luxury of at 6 a.m. This was really like, low budget 
And that was, uh, uh, you know, vastly different. And, and Orson, because he was Orson, was treated like a king. And the rest of us, even though there was a tremendous cast and everybody had great careers later, um, everybody else, we were treated like, you know, kind of like second-class citizens. And so Orson had, uh, we were all in these honey wagons and it wasn't a nice one. And, you know, I had just come off of a, uh, a, a, a tour of the entire country, staying in the, in the finest hotels, limos, the whole thing. Now I'm in um, a dressing room that we called the coffins because they were so small and uh, not nice. And, uh, but yeah, we were young. So, you know, you want to experience things. And, and I did. <laughs> and so, and we were up high on a hill. And I'm telling you this story to kind of tell you what Orson was like. And we could see down the hill in kind of a little valley, we could see Orson's 50-foot luxurious trailer and his chef's trailer, which was right next to it. And then at lunchtime, you know, we could see, we, we would all like be spying on Orson. And and the chef would come out with, just like in a movie, and with a bottle of, just trying to show you, a bottle of wine and saying, how about this? Let him smell the cork, let him do it all. All the whole thing. And we, and we were like watching this from, you know, high above and he had the crystal and the china and the silver and, and, um, and he would choose the wine and then we could smell his lunch cooking, which smelled like delicious. And, uh, and, and the chef would bring out his, his meals on a, you know, covered by a silver cover and lift it up. And meanwhile, a truck would come up, a pickup truck. And like throw our lunches at us <laughs> in brown paper bags, and and it would be something like you know a soggy tuna fish sandwich, a can of Coca Cola, and maybe a you know maybe a, a little bit too soft apple, and that would be ours. And and I had just come off of you know luxury, and now I was doing this, but it was it was actually good for my for my ego, you know, and. Um, and so Orson, you know, you would think with all that, that he would have been obnoxious and he wasn't. And particularly with me, because all of his dialogue mostly was with me and mine with him. We had a few scenes with other people, but, but he was, um, he was great. And he had that voice, you know, the Orson Welles voice. It was just mesmerizing, just mesmerizing in person, mesmerizing on film. And he was a very big man. And there are pictures of us on the internet. Um, I'm in this kind of floating hippie kind of costume and he's in his warlock costume. And um, and uh, those are you know kind of great treasures because there's not a lot of people around who work with Orson. And, and so I'm gonna jump way ahead here. Years and years and years and years and years later, I'm doing, I'm producing the show that I produce now, Hollywood Radio Players. And and we were looking at, well, what, you know, because we do, we perform, we reenact classic radio plays because I love classic radio, classic dramas and comedies and musicals. And I just love them all from the 1920s, the 1940s, and, and even beyond a bit. And so um, I decided that I was going to direct uh, War of the Worlds 
as an homage to Orson, the Orson I had known, and an homage to War of the Worlds, which I loved and had heard 150 times. And um, because my grandmother had a vinyl record of it. And and so I did. I, I directed that. And my producing partner, Michael Carnegie, who was a incredible, um, just many voices, an incredible actor, and a great producer and a great editor. And um, so I cast him as Orson because I looked at all the people we had available to us. Um, and and he was, to me, he was Orson. And, and he did him so beautifully when you see the show. If you see the show, I hope you will. Um, you will see how beautifully Michael does Orson. He plays another character too, but man, does he do Orson well, uh, Orson Welles well. And uh, and so that so I jumped many decades, you know, ahead just because I wanted to tell you that. And in the in the show, I we have a wonderful um, we have had two wonderful hosts. Uh, our first host was Tom Bergeron, and he did uh, seven, you know, Tom Bergeron Emmy winner, Dancing with Stars, so forth. Mm-hmm. And he did uh, our first seven shows. We've just uh, done ten, number ten, and that comes out tomorrow actually and um and then and then uh, tom had to go off into a movie poor guy with william shatner lucky guy and so uh, lisa gibbons is our new host and she has just done her second show with us and but when i introduced i because tom did the hosting of war of the worlds and then i did an intro just because it was so uh, personal to me and then i know a lot about the history of war of the worlds and and then I want what really happened in 1938, as opposed to the mythology of what happened, and uh, so I, I talk about that, and and then the, and then we do the play, and uh, the radio play of that Mercury Theater did, 1938 that um, Orson Orson did, and um, Orson, you know, people a lot of people think that 1938 War of the Worlds when he first uh, became well known is not true. He was, and he was 27 years old, I think 27, when he did War of the Worlds. But he was already a top Broadway producer. He had three hit Broadway plays running it simultaneously. So I wanted, I really wanted to do that for Orson. It was like my, my homage, my gift to Orson. And you can see it. Go to HollywoodRadioPlayers.com. I actually have some questions uh, about that a little bit later on. And sure. what I one of the one of the next things I kind of wanted to chat about was um, Mr. Majestic. Um, sure. As as I recall, you were doing a play that wasn't maybe the best fit for you, and in kind of an unorthodox manner, kind of like your story earlier about going into the agent's office. It, 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 did you just go straight into? Walter Mirish's office and just kind of bypass your agent to 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 do how did that happen I I understand there's a story there so I was cast in Mr. Majestic um but I was also cast in this play simultaneously and and I figured I could I could not do both because Mr. Majestic was shooting a location in Colorado and the play was uh, here. And I thought it was a very important play at a very important theater. And so I, much to my agent's total horror, chose to do the play. And then, and so I turned down Mr. Majestic. And uh, because it, because um, my career had taken off and I was being offered a lot of stuff. 
And uh, I turned on Mr. Majestic and said, I'm so sorry. I really want to do a play. And there's this play. And I'm so sorry, Mr. You know, Mr. Mearsh. I'm so sorry. And then I started rehearsal for the play and it was really quick. I realized, oh my goodness, this is a mistake. So I called up Mr. Mears. I always called him Mr. Mears. I, I sometimes called him Walter, but I didn't feel comfortable with that. He's Walter Mears, my gosh, he'd done everything. And, uh, and so I called him up, you know, calls the office, got him on the phone. And, uh, and I, I said, first, let me apologize, you know, uh, for not doing film. He said, no, honey, I understand. You wanted to do a play, you know, totally understand that. And I said, well, don't want to do the play. I've changed my mind. I've been in rehearsals and mm, this is not going to be a good thing for me. And I want to do Mr. Majestic. And he said, well, you know, I have these actresses in the office right now in the waiting room. They're auditioning. I said, oh no, gosh, I didn't want to you know, hurt anybody or anything. He said, but I really want you to do the movie. I always did. And he said, um, just come on over to the office and um, I'm going to send everybody home. And I said, oh, no, no, that's really terrible. He said, no, it's kinder. It's kinder that way. Rather than letting them audition and then telling them they don't have it because you already have it. You know, you've always had it. And just come over to the office. We'll talk about it. So I did. I went over to the office. All the other actresses had gone home. Which I felt real bad about, and um, and uh, we talked about it, and just talked about I don't know concepts and you know how I would do this and how I would play that, and and so and I did, you know, I ended up doing Mr. Majestic and not the play, which was a huge flop. So it was one of the, the good decisions I made. Was one of them. Another name that sticks out to me is your work on Big Wednesday with director John Melius, whom everyone from George Lucas to Steven Spielberg is pretty much called a genius. How did that role come about and what memories stick out to you about working with John? Well, John is a very good friend of mine and um, and he's doing, you know, I'm going to see him soon. And he had a, a terrible stroke, you know, several years ago, which he has in his John Melius way um, fought his way through doing much better. And he is a genius. He is, I think, one of the greatest writers, one of the greatest storytellers ever, ever born. And you just look at his body of work, like, you know, Big Wednesday, Conan, um, gee, you know, Apocalypse Now, you know, he, he wrote that with uh, Francis. He just, you know, all these, you know, famous lines uh, they're his and he wrote them and he is the greatest storyteller I ever met and he's a great guy I get along very well with him he uh, how did that happen well again my career was going well I was offered a lot of things and I get a call one day saying you know, you have a, a meeting, uh, go over and meet with John Milius. And I'm like, what, John Milius? Yeah, John Milius at Warner Brothers. He had an office there for years and years. I said, okay. And um, they said, oh, you know, he has, a <laughs> he has a request. You don't have to audition. You know, you don't have to do a reading or anything. Um, he wants you for this one role. And I ended up uh, playing a different role. But um, he's, he wants you to come in a bikini. And I said, I'm not coming in a bikini. 
sorry, I don't do that. And uh, they, and my agent said, you know, he wants you for the role. He just wants to see you in a bikini. I'm like, I don't do that. You know, I'm a serious actress. I don't have to do that. And uh, they said, well, that's what he wants. And I thought about it and I thought, oh, God, it's John Milius. I read the script. It was brilliant. But then I realized reading the script, I didn't want to play the role I was being offered. I wanted to do the other role. And I wanted to change the name of the other Did the role. original role involve a bikini? All the roles did because it's Big Wednesday. It's yeah. surfing. Got it. You know? And um, so I, I, I thought, okay, I know what I'll do. I'll make this palatable to myself. I will grant him his wish. I understand why, even though I don't like it. But I will make it so that it, I can deal with it, you know, as a woman. And so I, I had, uh, I, I had seen that. Um, oh God, I don't know how to put this. Um, anyway, I decided I would wear a trench coat over my bikini, and then I would go into John's office and say hello, and I would flash him. And I did that. I walked in. I had on a trench coat, a bikini underneath. I said, "Are you watching?" And he was like, "Uh, yeah." I said. Don't blink. This is only going to happen once in your life. And he was like, well, okay. And I went like this. I flashed him in my bikini. I closed up the trench coat. And I said, is that enough? And he said, yep. And I said, okay, let's talk about the part. I don't want to do the part. I want to do this other part. And he was like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me why. And I said, because I have played that other part like a number of times. It's no challenge. I don't want to do it. There's lots of actresses who can do that part extremely well. And you should hire one of them, but not me. I'm not doing it. And he was like, yeah, I think you're right. And and that's the part I ended up doing. So she was written as Karen. I said, please change her name to something else. And he changed it to Peggy, Peggy Gordon. And that's how I got the part. And we became great friends. And and we've been great friends all these years. And that film has become a bit of a cult classic since its release. Um, what do oh, you yeah. think has, has given Big Wednesday such staying power with film lovers? You know, it's really interesting because we were all horribly disappointed. It was given a very inappropriate release. It The PR was wrong for that film. It was just wrong. In my opinion, and pretty much everybody else's opinion, it was not... It, it didn't suit the film. It was like they're surfing this and surfing that. And the film is not a film about surfing any more than Field of Dreams is just about baseball. You know, it's not. It's about friendship and it's about love and it's about time passing and loss and joy and set against a background of surfing, of course, just like Field of Dreams is set against, uh, against a background of baseball. And, um, but the marketing was like surfing, you know, and they didn't, they didn't look at the beauty of the story. They didn't promote the beauty of the story. They didn't market it that way. I think what has happened to that film, because it did not do well, we were horribly disappointed because that film was, yeah, the script was brilliant. Everybody in it was brilliant. And uh, the directing was brilliant. It was just amazing. The camera work was so innovative 
uh, it just nobody had ever seen anything like that. And um, there's no CGI. You know, it's the real deal. And um, so what happened, I think, to that film, because we were all, you know, we, we, we all know each other very well. And um, Jan is gone now, but, you know, the other one, you know, we're still around. And we've had a lot of different anniversaries and reunions and, and so forth. And so we got invited to go down to um, not Laguna Beach, but one of the, one of the, beach town big film festivals they invite us to go down there and we said ah, i will do that you know and and so the four of us it was always the four of us went because patty who plays the other female lead lives on the east coast and unfortunately she is never available for anything i adore her and we are in contact a lot um so the four of us you know me and, and uh jan and uh gary and um billy went down to uh this famous film festival and come to me and and we're in a limo and we get closer and we're like we see a lot of people and this is a film festival they have a lot of films playing not just ours and we're like wow look at all those people there must be a really good film playing there and and we're looking and it's like as we get closer it's like it, it was unbelievable there were lines around the block and and then we're like, wow, what is that film that's playing there? And and then we get closer, and then we get out of the the limo, and then we, you know, approach you know approach the building, and people go crazy. That they just go crazy that we're there, and it was like, what 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 what's this about? And then you know the people who were you know taking care of us, they met us, and they said, you know, we've had to uh, shut down all the other films because we had so many people show up for Big Wednesday, we've expanded it into all the theaters. And we were stunned. We are like, wait, Big Wednesday? Because we didn't know that it had this kind of groundswell. And this, we didn't know. I mean, nobody had told us. And so they said, so what you're gonna do is um, we're gonna kind of stagger the films, uh, the, the screenings, and then you're gonna go into one theater and do a Q&A, and then you're going to go to the next theater and do a Q&A, and the next theater and Q&A. I think there were probably three. And so we did that, and, and we were all just flabbergasted, really, as my grandmother would have said. And we uh, walked on the aisle of the first theater, and people, it was like Rocky Horror Picture Show. People were yelling our lines at us and expecting us to catch the cue and say the line back. And it was like, sorry, it's been a number of years. I don't know those lines. And, and they're screaming at us like we're rock stars. And, and we're, we're just astounded. We had no idea. We do the Q&A and then same thing happened in the next theater and same thing in the next theater. And then we realized that this movie, all these years later, was a hit. We're like, how can this possibly be? And I think, it, I think what happened was that enough people had seen this movie over the years that they had reach the underbelly of the movie, the true story of the movie, not just, oh, it's about surfing and girls in bikinis, but the story of love and loss and friendship. And because it covers 13 years, that movie. And and we, and it was really, it was really a period piece when we shot it, it was, uh, you know, before, before our, at the time we were shooting it. And it covered a 13, 13 year period. And, um, 
And so then every place we've ever gone since then about the movie, this is the way it goes. It goes like that. And it's just astonishing, really, to all of us. But I think that's what happened, because when people talk to me about big wins and they haven't seen it, I'm talking about people who weren't born when we made that movie. You know, I mean, it's astonishing. And they're and they're like, that's my favorite movie. I'm like, what? You're 12. And they're like, yeah, I know. My dad made me watch it and I've seen it 50 times and I watch it every whatever. So people come up to me. I really, honestly, I have about three movies like that, that, you know, I go to an airport, I go to another country, I go to a, a mall, you know, and somebody will come up and go, oh my God, you're in Big Wednesday. Oh my God, you're in Valley Girl. Oh my God, you're in Almost Summer. You know, I have about three, about, yeah. And then others that I thought. Should be like know, that. Mm-hmm. And they're not, they're beloved, but they're not like that. Mm-hmm. And um, so it. Th- I think that's what happened because, okay, this is what I was going to say. Whenever people talk to me who haven't seen Big Wednesday, um, and they're like, oh, you know, I heard you in this movie, this Big Wednesday, and it's a surfing movie. I'm like, no, it's not a surfing movie. Yes, it's a set of kind of background of, of surfing just like Rudy is set against the background of football but mm-hmm. that's not what Rudy is about it's about the, this other thing right and um, I say look I want you to see it but I want you to see it twice because the first time you see it you're going to be blown away blown away by you know the surfing and the girls and and uh, and then unbelievable cinematography and you're not going to see the story see it twice and then you're going to see the story and every single time, anybody who does that, who actually does it, comes back to me and goes, you're right. You're totally right. First time, I saw all the surface stuff is beautiful. Second time, I saw the story and I cried. Speaking of directors, another name that sticks out to me on your CV is Sidney Poitier, who directed you in Stir Crazy. I mean, yeah. what a luminary uh, of film and trailblazer, I mean, for, for all people of color. Are there any memories that stick out to you, particularly about Sydney? Oh, sure. You know, I just did a small part in that. Um, in, in the opening, I had, I had uh, a very memorable scene with Gene, Gene Wilde. Yeah. And um, so how that happened, and, and then I'll, you'll see about Sydney. So I auditioned for a different role um, that I wasn't right for. Yeah, I just wasn't. But I auditioned for it. It's the role that um, really the lead, um, wonderful actress, um, uh, got the role. And so Sydney called me, he got my number, I guess from cast, and he called me up and and uh, he said, oh, hello, it's Sydney." And I'm like, yeah, of course it is, because nobody else speaks like that. And, um, and he said, I'm sorry, but you're not right for the role. And I said, well, I actually know that, but thank you anyway. And he said, well, wait, wait, no. Uh, there's this other role. It's small, but it's memorable. It's in the beginning. It's with Gene Wilder, and I want you to do it. And I said, um, I don't know the role. Can you uh, send it to me? And so they dropped off the script. I read the script. And and because he said, when you read it, call me back. And I said, sure. I mean, he loved actors. He loved, loved, loved actors. And he was very respectful of actors. And... He he knew that. Uh, I mean, I had a I had a good career, you know, and already already had a good career, and I he knew that I probably wouldn't want to do it. And but when I read it, and I went, 
you know, this is funny. And it's Jane Wilder. And it's Sidney Poitier. And yeah, I, I think I do. But but I had criteria, uh, certain certain things I wanted to do it. And uh, and I knew my agent was would never ask for those things. And I would. And so I called Sydney back and I said, you know, I do want to do it. And for all those reasons, I just said, um, but, and he said, oh, it's wonderful, great, wonderful. And I said, yes, but I have a certain requests. And he said, fine, what are they? And I told him. And I had to do with money and billing and um, all the things that my agent should have been negotiating, but I knew that they wouldn't. Uh, and because of the size of the role, and also I knew that they were telling me not to do it, do the role. So this all took place between Sydney and me, and no agents were involved at that point. And they were involved earlier for the, oh, Jo Beth Williams. Yeah, she ended up doing that, that really, and she was wonderful, really wonderful. And um, I, I knew my agents would not want me to do the role, and they would not ask for what I was asking for. And so I, I was I was really um, over the top with my asks. And Sydney said, okay, so you want this, this, and this, and this, and this. And I said, yes. And he said, fine, done. And that was that. And I was like, it was astounding. It was astounding because if we had put it in um, the agent's hands or if we put it into the producer's hands or the casting hand, it wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have gotten what I wanted. And he really wanted me to do it. And he wouldn't have gotten me, I wouldn't have done it. And, but because it was just the two of us on the phone, I got everything I wanted and he got what he wanted, which was for me to do that role. And that's, and that's how that happened. And he was, he was great. You know, he was, he was great. He was, he was a taskmaster. I'll say that for him. It wasn't easy going on the set. He had a certain standard and everybody had to come up to that standard and fine with me. And um, and he was dealing, we're talking about some major, major talent, major, 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 major Hollywood talent. And it was great. It's funny how you quite literally have rubbed shoulders with most of old Hollywood and new Hollywood. You know, yes. is, is there is there anyone from that you wish you would have gotten the chance to 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 work with but haven't yet let's say now is there anybody you'd love to work with now that's out that's i'd okay this is gonna be crazy i'd really like to do a marvel movie and i'd really like to work with all of those people on the marvel movies because i really admire them that they can do that that's the ultimate of make-believe and they can do it, and they can do it brilliantly. And I would love to be, to work with all those people that do Marvel movies. I'd like to work with Robert Downey Jr. I'd like to work with, oh my God, Patrick Stewart. You know, I'd, I, anybody in a Marvel movie, pretty much anybody in a Marvel movie, I would like to work with. And I think that they're, uh, maybe we're coming to the end of them. Uh, but I, I really admire everybody who's been in them, who's produced them, who's directed them. Uh, I, I love, I love all that talent. It's just massive amounts of talent. And I just think they're all great. And um, I'd like very much to work with 
any of them. You also worked with Nicolas Cage on one of his early roles, and you were directed by Martha Coolidge in it at a time when female directors were sadly still a bit of a rarity. What was your experience like on that film working under Martha? You're talking about Valley Girl. Um, well, female directors are still uh, still a minority. Yeah, you know it, it's better than it was, but I know I direct myself, and um, I have uh, tried to get a, a deal directing a film. I haven't succeeded yet, almost, but not quite. And uh, so I'm directing Hollywood radio players and other things that I can just simply hire myself. And um, uh, it was interesting. Uh, that was another thing I was just offered out of the blue. And um, and actually, it was I didn't even, it was my girlfriend called me, Colleen Camp, and said, I'm going to do this movie, and uh, you want to be in it? And I said, well, I don't know. Can I read the script? And so they, you know, she sent a script. I mean, Colleen was just in it and was a friend of Martha's. She wasn't casting. And Colleen's a very, you know, fine actress in her own right and uh, certainly a big producer now. And um, and we're still friends. Uh, just saw her recently. And um, and so I said, yeah, uh, this this seems fun. And and she said, well, there's not much money. And I went, OK, seemed like a little bit less fun then. She said, but it's a female director. And I said, it's a what? A female director. And that was like, I was done. It was like, sure. Who is it? She told me, and I like, I never heard of her. She said, she's going to be big. And uh, so that was like, like we had a, we had our 40th anniversary recently at Valley Girl. We had two huge events. Um, one was at the Chinese Theater, a Hollywood, very famous theater. And the other one was at Quentin Tarantino's Theater because it's one of his favorite movies. And, um, and they were talking about uh, Martha. Martha was there. We were all there. Everybody, 21 of us, I think. And uh, uh, and how shocking it was that it was a female director at that time. And of course, she went on to direct many, many, many more films. And she also became president of the Directors Guild of America, the DGA, which was, she was the first female president. And uh, so working with a female director was just wonderful. It was just a gift. It was so different it was it was just a different sensibility just I loved it I just I just loved it and and she's great and all of this to, to say not only have you worked with some of the greats but I mean I, literally you've you've been fantastic in so many things yourself with two Thank Emmy you. nominations um mm -hmm. for Long Road Home and, and Secret Sins of the Father Let, let's right. start by talking about Long Road Home how did that role come about uh, nobody wanted me for that role uh, because I look a certain way. And um, it was a character role. And she was supposed to be a migrant farm worker. And nobody wanted me. And I wanted that role utterly desperately. I had heard about it. There was a big, thick book out that it was based on. It was. It really was like very personal to me. Um, just because of family situations and back in the thirties and, and I wanted that role real bad and nobody would see me for it and wouldn't offer it to me, wouldn't do anything. They're like, are you kidding? You're not right for this. You're not right for this. 
She's a migrant farm worker. She's a plain, you know, woman from Oklahoma. And I'm like, you know, I lived in Tulsa. And I'm like, yeah, well, you're not right for it. And I, I called everybody. I mean, I pursued that role. I called everyone. And finally, the casting director, who's somebody I, I knew, know to this day, um, and he actually writes about this in his book, but he uh, he said, I don't know, but let's let's give it a go. You know, how how plain can you look? How, you know, what can you do? And I said, I'll do it. Don't you worry. Because I, I had done it once before in the film, Dirty Little Billy, which was yeah, a great Billy, movie. That was a Billy the Kid movie, like almost like a true account movie, right? Yes, it was. Yeah, Dirty Little Billy. Yeah, it was a great, a great film. And um, and I had looked very, almost like a man. And, um, but so I, I, I said to him, I have, I have looked this way before. I can do it again. And um, so I, I went and I auditioned for it. And I wore this old dress I bought at the thrift, thrift store that looked like a 1930s dress that I a poor woman would have worn. Did my hair kind of brown, no makeup at all. And I walked in barefoot, carrying a box. And there was something in the box. And um, the producer was there and he was, he kept looking at the box, right? And I wasn't gonna, I was, I didn't even mention the box. I just walked in carrying this box, a large box. And um, barefoot at, uh, CBS and um, did my reading and he said yeah I, you know, really good reading what was in the box and I, I was like oh it's just a photograph I just happened to have it with me and he was like well can I see it and I'm like oh I don't think you will. and I like played with him a little bit made him really want to see it right so I pulled out this photograph uh, which was a George Harrell photograph if you ever heard of George Harrell one of the most famous photographers who ever lived and he had been the unit photographer on Dirty Little Billy. And I had a photograph that was, I still have it. You can't see my hands. It was about two feet tall and about a foot wide. It was massive. And it was of me as my character of a girl in Dirty Little Billy. And very downtrodden in the Old West. Uh, you know, dirty face, old clothes, whatever. And he was like, who is that? And I said, well, that's me. And he's like, that's not you. And I went, oh, yeah, but that is me. And he got really interested. So then I had to go up the food chain uh, because, again, every level, nobody would believe I could play that. And so Mark Harmon, bless his heart, he called me and he said, I'm going to audition with you when you when you do your next audition. I want you for this role. I know you can do this role. Because he was playing uh, the husband. And he said, I know you can do it. They don't know you can do it, but I know you can do it. So he, he, he went with me to every audition. And I think I had about maybe three. Because again, every level, nobody believes I could do it, right? And I would go to that next level, network level. Uh, and um, and then they would go, oh, oh my God. And and I remember at one audition, I was waiting out in the waiting room, doing my barefoot thing in my old beat up dress. And um, 
and somebody said, uh, okay, uh, where's Lee Purcell? And I said, um, right over here. And they went, no, no. And I went, yeah, yeah. And, and then ended up uh, uh, with Mark's support getting the role. And it was a very important role for me, both emotionally, both career-wise. It was really important for me to prove something to myself and to others. Ended up getting, you know, a Best Actress Emmy nomination for it. And it was, uh, it was, it was very meaningful to me. Still is to this day, very meaningful to me. Did you and Mark have as great chemistry off the set as you did on? Oh yeah, we'd known each other for years. That- yeah. We, we we knew each other, and um, that's why he, he was like he called me up and said I'm gonna I'm gonna do this with you because they don't believe it and I do, and he was just so supportive on set off set so supportive. What was the uh, the hardest scene to film for you in that? Uh, hardest scene? Hmm. I don't know. You know, they were all hard. It was a hard piece to do. Because we uh, we really were authentic with that, and you know I worked on the accent because I'm I'm good at accents, and then I worked with the kids on their accents, and um, Mark of course had his down, and um, and then they gave us because you know we were all city people and actors, and they wanted us to be able to look authentic in the fields, so we were taken to the actual because we shot in Northern California where all of these things took place in the 1930s. And it was very Grapes of Wrath. And um, and so we, we were taken to the fields and we were taught how to pick. And, and that was really something. And they taught Mark and me how to pick artichokes, which um, artichokes have razor-like leaves on them and they slice your hands and your arms open. And, you know, I was wearing uh, like torn cloth to protect my arms and my hands. I still got a lot of cuts, right? But, you know, we, we did that. And and plus we're out in the fields and, you know, it was loaded with pesticides and, you know, smelled like pesticides. And, and uh, it, it really gives you a tremendous respect for those who uh, gather our food, you know, on a daily basis for year upon year. And and also, you know, relatives of mine back in the day. And so um, I think that that when we shot that scene, the real scene where we shot it, where we were picking, that was a really hard scene to do. You know, uh, physically it's very hard out in the ledges, like blazing sun. And we were actually doing what other people do for a living. And we were doing it for film, right? But, you know, we had a tremendous respect for them. Uh, because we knew how hard it was because we had been taught. And of course, then we had the privilege of walking away and going to our trailers. And the people who actually do that for a living don't have that. They don't have that privilege. So emotionally, the whole show was very, very difficult on all of us. And um, But in the end, it was, I think, a great piece of work. I'm very proud of that piece of work on everybody's part everybody's and um and then i got a nomination and that was icing on the cake when did you find out you had been nominated for the emmy emmy and and what do you remember about that moment i don't you mean the date i don't know the date and do you remember anything about like how you found out or any of that stuff oh yeah i remember because 
you know, um, I, I, I was in the running. I knew that. And, um, and you get up early in the morning, just like people did yesterday, because the Emmy nominations were prime. This is prime time. Uh, Emmy nominations were announced yesterday. And I, every, t- every year I go, I remember that day. And um, I got I gotten up early and I was watching it um, on television, watching the nominations and and they called out my name. And wow. That was something. That's really I almost fell off I almost fell off the chair. I mean I was like, oh my God. And it was just a thrill. You know, it was just a it was just a thrill. We worked so hard on it. I was, we worked really hard on it. And I was really disappointed that Mark didn't get nominated, but then we found out his name never got submitted. So he wasn't even in the running. And that was really made me mad. It was an accident, you know, because he he, he would have gotten nominated. He was incredible. And uh, so that was a great moment. You know, you have those moments. You don't have them all the time. They're rare. I had another one where I was nominated later, but um, it, it's a great thing because you're nominated by your peers. And I know that sounds like a cliche, but it isn't, you know, it, it's one thing to be nominated, say, for something that many, many people vote on. But it's a whole other thing to be nominated by other actors. That is a gift. For uh, Secret Sins of the Father, you acted alongside another set of Hollywood heavyweights and Bo and Lloyd Bridges. How did you first become attached to that film and what made you interested in that role? I can't quite remember, but I, I, but I remember I remember my agent at the time. He said, do you want to do this role? And I said, let me read it. People always asking me doing this well. I'm like, well, can I read it? And um, and I I said, let me read it. And so he sent it to me. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is a great role. This is a really wonderful role. And it's very different because that, like two years before, I had done Long Road Home. And so now I was looking something of more of like you know a, a contemporary, a more average woman, not yeah. a not a you know not a migrant farm worker, not a character role. And yeah. So, and this was that, you know, but she was a woman who uh, suffered a a terrible betrayal from her husband. And, um, and I thought, yeah, I would, I would like to do that. And, and so he went back to them and he said, yeah, she wouldn't. And and they were like, okay, well, uh, you know, we're, we're, whatever, we're considering it or we're, uh, we got to cast this other role first or we, whatever, right? So it was this kind of weird waiting period. And meanwhile, I was getting other roles and opportunities, uh, yeah. other opportunities, proper opportunities. Right. But it's still, this role was like kind of in my head and, uh, and I would call him up and go, have they offered it yet? And he's like, not yet. He said, you know, and I said, well, you know, I'm just not going to turn down things. And, uh, and, and then they offer it to me and then what happens? And, and I said, you just got to call them up and you got to tell them the truth that I've been offered this other role and I'm going to take it unless they offer me this role today. And he said, all right. So he did. And they went, no, no, oh, no, 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 we want her. And he said, well, you know, you can't keep like stringing her along like this because she's got other opportunities. And they said, no, no, she, it, it, fine. We'll offer it today. It, fine. And so that's how that happened. And then, um, 
and, and it was an interesting role. It was uh, a woman whose heart is, you know, gets broken by her husband's uh, betrayal with another woman. And, uh, and that was uh, a very rich uh, role to play, very rich. And, um, and Bo, you know, Bo directed it, Bo Bridges. And, uh, and then he had his whole family in it. Everybody, except for Jeff. But every, I mean, there must have been 10 or 11 bridges in that film. I mean, his father played, you know, his father, my father-in-law. His mother played his mother, my mother-in-law. He had cousins and, and, and his sister was in it. And, uh, and he had nieces and nephews and cousins. And, you know, and it was so much fun to be surrounded by the Bridges tribe. And I said to Lloyd one day, could you just adopt me? Because I would love to be a family member. He said, well, yeah, okay. You're an unofficial Bridges. And um, they were just, a, they're just the best people on earth. Just the best people on earth, all of them. And I, I had already known Jeff for a long time. I didn't know Bo until, you know, we met uh, and he played my husband who betrayed me and he directed it. And um, again, I'll always be grateful to Bo because, hey, I got another Emmy nomination and it was a great role. And it was a contemporary role and it was a role that, I really hadn't played that role before. I hadn't played the woman who gets betrayed. I, not that I recall. I can't remember. But that was, um, it was great. It was uh, a very meaty kind of role. Not a tremendous amount of dialogue, but the dialogue that there was was impeccable. Do you feel like you were creating something special with your performance i mean like did you feel this was a role that might get you another nomination at the time or was it just you were just doing what you do because that's what you do or did you did you you know because sometimes i've spoken with other people in the industry and sometimes they just kind of have a feeling that what they're doing is just really really special you know what i mean i i did and i didn't long road home i did because i had fought so hard and i had done it so thoroughly and researched it so much and and put my heart and soul into it and um with secret sins of the father it wasn't like that but it was like hmm this is a role i haven't played and this these are emotions that i have that i have that i can tap into uh because i have experienced that type of betrayal but i hadn't played it on screen or stage. And um, I just, I don't know, I just basically did what my friend did. I put one foot in front of the other and just did the role, you know, day by day by day and lived it, breathed it. And then when I got the second nomination, it was, I was, I was surprised, but it was another great gift. It was another wonderful gift. And really, I owe a lot of that to Bo because he uh, gave me tremendous freedom to basically do what I want. He, he, he reined me in when it was too much and he encouraged me when it was too little, uh, but he gave me a tremendous uh, creative freedom. And every time I see him and go, I got my second Emmy nomination because of you. And we laugh about it. And um, so, you know, I didn't expect it, but I was hoping for it. We started off, the interview talking about family and whether or not the military family was uh, supportive of these 
13 year old ambitions that you had and that they weren't necessarily at what point did that change at what point in the career did suddenly the validation come never jeez no I, it's okay you know see my father had died and um and my mother had remarried and both of you know my father must separate military men and um you know every time i would see them I would get the question, when are you coming home? I was 40. It's okay. It, honestly, honestly, I don't care. Because I was the 13-year-old that decided what I was going to do. I'd already been doing it, you know. And I remember my mother said to me one day, after I left and I was a professional actress, and she said, we just, we just didn't know that you were going to do that. I said, how could you not know? I've been doing it since I was five. You drove me to Neiman Marcus. I was three. I couldn't drive. You drove me to work. You drove me to the studio when I was eight, you know, to do some performance in some you know, in this regional show. And I mean, you saw me on stage. You saw me when I was 13 and I was performing all over that part of the country. How could you not know? And she said, we just thought it was a hobby. And I thought, okay, I understand. Their dreams were different from mine. And their goals were different from mine. I don't think it's important that other people agree with you about your life. It's your life. You know, as long as you are doing things that are positive for yourself and, and for, you know, those around you, you know, it's your life. And, and you need to do what your life, what you want your life to be. You need to create it as to what you want it to be. And hey, if you want to be a homemaker in a small town, and that is your dream, and you want to have a whole bunch of kids, more power to you. I think that's great, because that's your dream. I think that there are certain things, like I, I know, I've known since I was a child, certain things that I know that I need, you know. I know I need um, the outdoors, you know, I know I need, uh, but strangely enough, I need to be in a city and, you know, I know these things and I know that I know that I was uh, uh, in the wrong place for me, for me, not for other people. It was the right place for other people. And it would have been, I guess, nice. Maybe it wouldn't have been nice if they would have been supportive. Maybe it wouldn't have been nice if they had given me money. Maybe that wouldn't have worked at all. Life in a different way might have impacted, you know, comfort in a different way. Sometimes you have to have a little bit of that discomfort to to fuel it, right? I think you do. I I I think you should not get too comfortable because if you do, mm, that's dangerous. It's why I'm opposed to retirement for everybody. I don't I don't believe in retirement. I don't, and I've just seen it time and time again. People retire. And then they go downhill and then they die. And so when people say they're retiring, I'm like, are you sure? And like, I have a family member, he recently retired. <laughs> and I know him very, very well. He's like my brother. And although I don't have a brother, but uh, he's like my brother. And I said to him, are you sure? And he was like, oh, yeah, it's going to be great. I can play golf. I can do this and I can do that. That lasted less than six months. Mm. 
and he called me up and he said, oh, this retirement stuff sucks. I said, I told you so. So he's gone back to work, but on his terms. So I think, I, I think you just need to know what your dream is. Or if you don't, look at a lot of different things. Explore a lot because not everybody's lucky like me. You know, they didn't just, you know, have it just occur to them. Just like, oh, you know, uh, you're an actress, you're, you're this, you're that. They didn't, and I had to work really hard for it, but but they didn't have the, the knowledge and the uh, out-of-the-box thinking because there was no way I should have done what I did. There was no way. I wasn't raised to do that. I had no entertainment industry connections. I knew no one. And I was just this little girl in the middle of nowhere. And it was just, all I could think about was performing. It was just all I could think about. And there was no reason, no rhyme, no reason. Other people, they're born into it, lucky them. And they have families that, you know, do it. And so they just kind of go into the family business. And, uh, you know, and that would have been nice. Um, but I, I think no matter where you are, no matter what you do, no matter what kind of family you're in, whether, you know, they're supportive or they're kind or they're not, um, you know, have a dream. You know, if you don't have a dream, explore dreams and figure out what your dream is, because you're going to find one. If you look, if you look hard enough, you're going to find a dream. And I think that's uh, what keeps people going. And you know what? I got to go because I have a union meeting. Oh, and we're going to talk about the strike. So, well, fun, fun, fun. Because I was uh, the, uh, the last thing I was going to ask you about was Hollywood radio players. Um, I'll ask you real quick then where can our audience go to catch the performances or follow those releases? Okay, Hollywood radio players, which is my current dream. Yes. And that, I, that I'm following and, um, and created with some other people. And I, I produce it with my partner, Michael Carnegie, my producer and partner. And we, I think I said earlier, we uh, re, do we, we do re reenactments of classic radio plays, and we have an awful lot of fun doing it. And it is radio you can see because you see us. It, it's unusual. It's different. We created this medium. And so you hear us and you see us. And um, you can go to HollywoodRadioPlayers.com. That's our website. And then there's a menu there of all of our shows. You just click on the show you want to see. That takes you to our YouTube channel to that particular show. And we have uh, 10 shows uh, on, on Friday. We'll have 10 because the 10th is being posted. I directed it. And um, it's a very funny comedy called The Bickersons. It's a short piece. Some of our pieces are very long. This one's short. Very funny, very funny uh, story about this couple named The Bickersons. And it was very popular. It ran from 1946 all the way into the 60s. And um, I hope you like it. I, I really enjoyed directing it. And I have a little, little tiny part in it. And um, and it's 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 really a fun piece. And then we have everything. We have uh, scary things. The Hitchhiker is very, very scary. And we have War of the Worlds, which is our big, you know, our big accomplishment. I directed that one. And it's up to 16,000 views now. We're quite excited about that. And we're just going to keep going. We're just going to keep doing it and expanding it and growing it. And also there's going to be other things that are going to come out, out of it. Can't say what right now. And, um, 
and so go on there. We do, we do this to benefit the Motion Picture and Television Fund, which is our industry charity. And we're going to, and it, it got hit pretty hard in the pandemic. A lot of people needed help. And now that there's going to be two unions on strike, we're going to need a lot of help. The Motion Picture and Television Fund is. You can see the shows for free. But if you can donate anything, there's a link uh, where to donate. Just click on it and it'll take you to the link. I mean, anything is is useful. Don't think you've got to donate masses of money. You don't. Uh, just anything that you that your heart tells you, you, you can donate. And your pocket <laughs> tells you you can donate. So please do go see Hollywood Radio Players. We're quite proud of it. It's very unusual. There's nothing like it, and I can guarantee that. And we are constantly learning and growing and improving. So stick with us because it's just going to get better and better. And thank you so much for having me on the show. It was great fun. Really appreciate it. And I'm now going to go to my union meeting, and I'm going to hear about Stripe. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Lee Purcell. Thank you guys so much. <laughs>